The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the guests' own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of AIHA. AIHA does not endorse any guest or the entity that they represent. On this episode of Healthier Workplaces, we speak with industry veteran Mike Harris about safety issues in the welding industry. Coming up next... Welcome to another episode of Healthier Workplaces. I'm Bob Krell, founder and publisher of Healthy Indoors Media and your host for this program from AIHA. Stay with us. What motivated me to get in the field is I needed a job. And, uh, That's a good motivator. That's a good motivator. Yeah, that'll work every time. Yeah. Uh, my, my doctorate's in environmental sciences and geomorphology, and I was doing environmental work uh, in Las Vegas. And uh, there were family reasons why I needed to return to Baton Rouge. And so a friend of mine put me in touch with a guy that had an industrial hygiene business here in Baton Rouge, a guy named Steve Verrett, and he was doing a lot of asbestos work, and he needed somebody to help him with it that had a background in science and a background in management, and I had both of those things. So I flew out, and I talked to Steve for a while, and we got along well, and so I went to work for Steve Verrett for four years. I learned a tremendous amount of industrial hygiene tools and techniques from Steve. After four years, I went out on my own, and... Uh, during that period of time was when that you used the, the word inspiration. And, you know, sometimes it's hard to get worked up about being inspired about just trying to make a paycheck, trying to make a living. And basically, when I got into industrial hygiene, that was asbestos work. And anybody who's done asbestos work can tell you it's about the most thankless thing on the face of the earth. Absolutely. And it was just, it was yeah. drudge. Yeah. Uh, but also uh, had a client, had a major facility here in Baton Rouge, and uh, they had an event. And events are not good in the petrochemical business. Nope. And so they, they needed some cleanup work on that and needed some industrial hygiene backup. So I ended up working at that plant for several years, back basically as a contract IH. 
And during the course of that work, there was a, a lot of hot work going on, thermal cutting of painted steel. Uh, when you have events like that, there's a lot of scrap metal that needs to be cleaned up. And so there are people out there with oxyacetylene torches cutting up painted metal. And uh, the contractor's safety and health person, Mike Moranto, had gotten with the uh, site industrial hygiene supervisor, Lindsay Boer, and they decided that uh, they needed to have some monitoring done with people doing this hot work. So I ended up doing that monitoring, I ended up doing the field work on it. And uh, based on that, uh, Mike and Lindsay implemented a lead program for those workers. About a month or so after I had done that monitoring, I was working at an adjacent part of the facility doing some benzene monitoring. And I saw the guys over there and we waved at each other. And about a half hour later, uh, I noticed they were all standing over there around. <laughs> they walked over to talk to me and they came over to thank me for doing that lead monitoring. They felt much better having respirators and showers and having the training. And uh, they wanted to thank me for doing that work. Now, they should have been thanking Mike Miranda and Lindsey Boer because those are the men that made that happen. But I was the person on site and it choked me up at the time. And Bob, it chokes me up now when I think about it. Uh, in my 35 years in industrial hygiene, that is one of the very few times anybody's ever said thanks. And it made a big impression on me. Sure. Because it, it went from being a cop, which is what you are if you're doing asbestos right, right. work, you're a cop, yeah. uh, to somebody who's actually making a positive difference in the world, in the eyes of the people being affected. Really protecting people. I mean, th that 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 potential exposure you know all that industrial paints full of lead you know and that, that makes complete sense um and what might i ask what year was this in or approximately what year i started in 89 okay so this would have happened uh, probably in 90. okay still still kind of early kind of early in the industry the way things are going well um so uh I, and, and as a follow-up to that, I think th that's a huge thing because that's that's where it becomes a real personal, you know, you're 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 actually get that interaction with a client. You know, you had that opportunity, and I'm I'm certain that you've probably had that since, right? It's not the first and only time, um, you know, that you've helped to make it a, an effect on people. And I, I do get what you're saying as far as being a an asbestos monitor. Yeah, you're just enforcing regs, and nobody likes to see you around for that. Um, but it's that's that's a big point you made. Well, I've had people ask me, "What are you an industrial hygienist? Yeah. Are you the person making me wear this respirator? Yeah. yeah. And then I've been asked, well, how do I know it's good enough? And I love questions like that. Because sure. Like, well, we monitor this stuff and I'm going to put one on and go in a workplace with you and do some more monitoring. And I get a chance to explain what we do and what the pump and the filter or the tube or whatever you're doing. But I've done all, always done my own field work. Okay. Up until just uh, this spring of uh, 80, uh, 23, uh, I was doing my own field work. But I'm, my body is 77 years old now, and it doesn't make sense to take it out into the refineries and into the plants. That's that's not good risk management. I'm too good. No. You know, and, and, and you know that's that's interesting that you acknowledge that. And and I, I think as we get older, we all have to. I'm, I'm 64 now, and I'm starting to have to acknowledge that there's things I did 20 years ago I can't really do anymore. <laughs> At least not not with the same vigor, that's for sure. I don't do very much with welding safety. I look at welding health effects. Okay. And the safety professional's job is different from an industrial hygienist's job. 
But so I, I think probably the person who wrote that question meant to use health effects rather than safety. But got it. You know, well, let's, just, let's go with health effects. Let's let's talk about welding health effects. Let's talk about that. Yeah. The uh, this actually starts back with. Uh, some work once again I was doing at the refinery working with Lindsay Boer. They had got a complaint from a contractor about uh, uh, nose irritation and a bloody nose, and that person had related it to welding fume, and Lindsay wanted an investigation done of welding processes there in the refinery. And so that began a years-long investigation, several years, where I did those investigations, working along with uh, Stephanie Carter and... There was a lot of monitoring. There's a lot of, of cutting and burning going on during a, uh, a petrochem turnaround because they run that equipment hard. And when they run it hard, they need to go in and, and rebuild and repair it. So working in, in that environment, it became pretty evident to me that very few people, in fact, nobody that I actually talked to was not an industrial hygienist, really had any clue about health hazards of welding. Safety hazards, yeah, you don't want to get electrocuted or burned. But in terms of what happens if you inhale this stuff or what the effects can be, that's, that's a whole different issue. So in view of that, I started talking to other industrial hygienists, and I found that many industrial hygienists really did know one welding process from another. And there are dozens and dozens of welding processes. Uh, I, I put together a little book, actually, in response in response to this, which identified the health hazards associated with 25 different welding processes, so that an industrial hygienist would have an idea of what's going on with different kinds of welding processes, a description of the process, a table for each process describing what the health hazards would be, and safety hazards as well, because you can't ignore it. People in the safety profession end up with industrial hygiene responsibilities, and people in industrial hygiene end up with safety responsibilities. So there is some safety in the, the welding health and safety uh, field guide that I put together. But the primary issue was we had a complaint on site and is there a problem? And yes, by golly, there was a problem. So then we started uh, working up uh, industrial hygiene guidelines at that facility for having to deal with welding safety hazards and welding health hazards. And the safety hazards are pretty easy. The health hazards are pretty tough because you have to start wearing a respirator. There are uh, all kinds of, of uh, exposure control tools available for welding fume, uh, like local exhaust systems are a good example. And uh, I actually have a business relationship with Air Quality Engineering who manufactures and sells LEVs. But the issue you have with LEVs, if you don't use them perfectly, they don't work very well at all. And they're not an engineering control. They're a work practice control because they require a lot of effort on the part of the welder or the welder's helper to keep that intake where it needs to be. Mm -hmm. So that being the case, we fall back on respiratory protection in most maintenance and repair operations. So now we go through respirator training and getting people on board with the idea that welding fume isn't just nasty. It's really bad for you. Now, Back 30 years ago, when we were just starting on this, we had a TLV for welding fume, which is the same as for respirable dust. So it was not regarded as being particularly toxic. And in 2003, 
the ACGIH withdrew the TLV for welding fumes, saying we should look at the individual constituents, things like X chrome and nickel, for example, manganese, for example. And then uh, things have changed quite a bit here in the last few years. IARC has recently categorized all welding fume as a group one carcinogen with the lung as the target organ. So this is going to turn the welding industry on its head. So I'm, I'm kind of forced to reach. I'm not retiring fact, actively from consulting work because I'm still here. I'm mm -hmm. still certified for the next five years. They just completed a, uh, a certification sequence. But I'm not doing field work anymore. But if, I would love to talk to anybody who wants to talk about what we're going to do about welding fume as a carcinogen. That's become the main topic of the professional development course that I offer. And it's become a primary topic of the uh, distance learning program the EIHA has available now. And it takes two chapters up in the most recent edition of the field guide for OEHS professionals for welding fume. So there's been a real shift mm -hmm. from, gee, it's nasty, I get a bloody nose, to, well, we've got nickel and hexavalent chrome if you weld on stainless. And now all welding fume. And the culprit is iron oxide. So, so that's that's actually the, the main culprit as far as being a carcinogen? Yep. Wow. That's it. Now, I've, I'm saying that point blank, like I can, you know, reach over and pull something from the Ritex or, or from NIOSH or mm -hmm. from the ACGIH saying that. Well, they don't. That's what's in the literature. Got it. I did, Bob, I, when, when IR classified welding fume, all welding fume is a carcinogen, I thought they goofed up. Really? I thought okay. Yeah, yeah, I did. Thought they overstepped, huh? Yeah. Well, you see, welders move around a lot. Mm -hmm. During my welding career, I had four different jobs, okay. and each one I was welding a different suite of metals. Mm -hmm. So you can have a bunch of welders that say they're carbon steel welders, but five years ago they've been welding stainless steel for two years. And so, because welders move from one exposure environment to another exposure environment as they change jobs, from welding stainless to welding carbon. To, uh, I welded a lot of Monel and Inconel when I was doing the, uh, nuclear work. So when this happens, we really don't have our cohorts well identified. We identify a bunch of people as, as, as carbon steel welders because that's what they were doing when we came out and did our investigation. But we may well find that these people welded stainless steel earlier, so they actually have nickel and hexavalent chromium exposures that weren't accounted for, and that is the issue i thought but i was wrong hmm. i wrote a paper about that and i sent it to jim antonini at niosh in morgantown west virginia dr antonini is a pulmonologist there and i asked jim to take a look at the paper and he said mike you need to talk to patty early because she and falcone have just published a paper showing that ordinary carbon steel welding fume from mig welding is a carcinogen got a positive response and I thought, man, that's nuts, because the only thing that's in that is iron oxide. Right. So then I did a really quick one-afternoon search on Google Scholar, typed in cancer and iron oxide, and I came up with a dozen papers. Wow. A dozen papers. And one of them, Kornberg et al., actually gives us a mechanism. So we've got epi data, we've got animal data, and we've got a mechanism. So I'm thinking that's something that I'm hoping somebody will be able to pick up this ball and run with it because that's not my area. I am a hard hat and steel toes IH. 
I'm not an office academic IH. Mm-hmm. Seriously, I've worn out three sets of FRCs. <laughs> God knows how many boots. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, man. So I'm, I've always been a field cat. You're a boots so, on the ground guy. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So I need the people who are the academic heads to jump on this. So I sent, I sent my list of 12 or 14 references to the ACGIH, and I also sent it to IARC and said, please do something, and now I wait. But it's fascinating that that's never actually been identified earlier. But I guess maybe as as you explained, you know, that the fact that welders do change the workplaces and, and the constituents they're they're welding uh, made it maybe cloaked it more, you know, to, to see, you know, what was actually causing issues with people as far as health related issues. Well, sure. Yeah. And if you look at the if you look at the other other iron exposures, which is going to be uh, foundry work. And iron refining and people are doing iron mine. Yeah. Well, that's loaded with respirable silica. And we've known about respirable silica for a long time. And so my my feeling here is that some of the uh, cancers that we see associated with those three workplaces may well be due to iron oxide as well as respirable silica. And the welding industry does a very, very poor job of transmitting health hazards. They do a great job on transmitting safety hazards. They have uh, Z49.1-2021 is the uh, American Welding Society Safety and Health and uh, Safety and Health. Actually, no, it's not health. It doesn't say health. It says safety and uh, welding and uh, associated processes. And they do a terrific job of addressing safety hazards but they, they don't really mention health hazards at all. So I don't, know, I don't know why they haven't done this, but we've got data going back to the 1940s saying that iron oxide is associated with cancer. And we don't really? see that. And we, I don't know why they haven't come out with that, why they haven't made that known. Yeah, that's, I mean, we're, you know, we're coming in on the 80-plus uh, year mark on that, with that yeah. kind of information being available, yeah. and nobody really recognized this is a potential problem. Wow. Yeah. Hazard, hazard communication standard says that manufacturers of chemicals, and for our purposes, almost anything is a chemical under sure. HASCOM, says that they need to investigate and see if there's a link between their stuff and any diseases. And I'm not saying the big public, and the problem that you've got, if you're a welding, manu, if you're a welding a consumable manufacturer, is you've been making these great electrodes all this time, and welding, welding is a great process. I am pro-welding. My brother was a welder. I was a welder. I've taught my son and my grandson to weld. So I am pro-welding. Mm. But I'm also pro-being upfront about what happens when we do weld. Oh, sure. Health and safety, right? I mean, it's pretty yeah. important. Yeah, and it just mystifies me. When I, For a while, I, was, uh, I had a car restoration business. I mean, when you're late okay. 70s, you've had a chance to do more than one thing. And uh, when I started painting with isocyanide catalyzed paints, the people at Pittsburgh Plate Glass PPG mm-hmm. told me, Mike, when you start wearing, when you start using these paints, you need to wear a respirator. In fact, I've got one here for you. Pulled out a respirator and says, you need to wear this respirator with the isocyanate paint so it'll make you sick as a dog. Mm-hmm. Well, I didn't. Mm-mm. And I got sick as a dog. And I'm sensitized to isocyanate now. Yeah, that's a lifetime sens- sensitization, too, right, when that happens. Yep. Yeah. So I can still paint, but I have to wear a full face. 
I mean, that's and is. that's true. That's true in uh, the uh, the spray foam industry now is running yeah. the same thing. It's just a lot of that same you know polyisocyanate condi- condi- uh, constituent in it the on the A part you know, that's in there. So now you've got people in the insulation industry saying you need to wear a respirator. People in the painting industry saying you need to wear a respirator. I think it'd be a great idea if the welding industry fell in line with their peers in other industries and said it's still great stuff. Just wear a respirator when you weld, and you're going to be all right. Yeah, I would love to see that. So to me, that's 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 a hole that needs to be filled somehow. And, and you know, and some tips that maybe to other OEHS professionals when they have to give presentations. You know, you know, I, I think the point is, you for me, I see you you already captured my interest. It didn't take long. So so uh, I want to hear about your secret. Is, is it a secret, Mike? I don't know. Passion. Straight up. If, if, I were, if I were to pick a word, that word would be passion. And part of what drives that passion was those guys walking over and say thank you. Part of, of what drives that passion is... Um, I didn't get into industrial hygiene until I was 42. And I feel really, really thankful to be able to spend the last 35 years of my life doing something that is really worthwhile and makes a difference in the world. So if you feel like you're in a job that gets a chance to do that, you, you it's pretty easy to get pumped up. Now, I, I, I do need to point out that uh, I am not untrained. I took public speaking in high school. I took public speaking in college. I had a faculty development course in the Army when I was an aircraft, aircraft welding instructor. I've taught at Cal State Fullerton, UNLV, and at LSU. Go Tigers. And, uh, you know, you, the, so the things that I've been thinking through that, because I remember reading that question, I was going, oh, my goodness, what do you tell people how to do public speaking? Number one is, is to be passionate about what you're doing. Most of the time when we get up in front of that, that when we're going to present a paper, we instantly get intimidated because you know that you're standing in front of a room full of some of the smartest people you're ever likely to meet. There are no dumb IHs. You have to have certain genetic gifts to be a professional soccer player, certain genetic gifts to be a professional baseball player, certain genetic gifts to be a professional industrial hygienist. You just have to have And when we get up in front of a room full of people that are sharp and know our profession, and we realize that we don't know it all because nobody knows all of industrial hygiene. That would require intimate knowledge of every industrial process in every place in the world, and we don't have that. But what we do have is a room full of people who desperately want us to succeed. They want us to have a good presentation. They have a friendly vibe toward us. And if we look at it and smile at them and feel warm toward those people, that gets bounced back at you. And so it's a matter of saying, look, I, I, I want to talk to you about and whatever esoteric, crazy little topic we've got, because we've got them. Sure. But this is this is why I want to talk to you about it. For me, it's easy. Welding film is a carcinogen. I mean, let's let's we'll deal with that. And sure. that I can trigger. For other papers, it can be more difficult. So first one is be passionate about what you're doing. 
find something interesting about it. What interested you in doing that? Why did you do that paper? Did you just stumble across some data and said, oh, gee, I can munch a paper out of this? Well, maybe you shouldn't be doing that. Right. Maybe just publish that one. Don't present it live. But the ones you present live, the audience wants to know why this is interesting. And it's interesting to you. So explain to them why it's interesting to you. Next. And you hear this every time. That's don't read your slides. The way to not read your slides is don't put your paper on the slides. Exactly. <laughs> Just put a few bullet points. And then spend the days ahead of time looking at your bullet points and then look away from the bullet points and say, no, why did I want to say this stuff? And then talk about it conversationally. Because we're afraid of making a technical error in front of a room full of scientists, we will frequently read the most detailed stuff we can to make sure we have all the details down so nobody can sharpshoot us from missing the detail. That's not productive. If somebody wants to ask us about something, I'll ask us. They'll ask for a copy of the paper. But give us give us the top. Give us that, that three-slide summary in your mind so that we can go, oh, this is interesting because of that. This is how they did it. These are their findings, and this is what I should do with that information. So it's those first and last one. Why do I care, and what should I do? If you do that, that's going to engage your audience. Oh, yeah, and that's... one other thing. Sure. I, I get butterflies the size of condors <laughs> every single time because it's important to me. If right. it weren't important, I wouldn't get butterflies, would I? I go, you know, fluff it off. So there it is. Passion that, and tell us why. You know, that's that that's that's amazingly great advice I, i've been a presenter for about 35 years uh mostly on indoor air quality related stuff same thing i i i can't agree with you more on what you just said there's people going up and reading reading a paper on a powerpoint slide uh, we can read it faster than you can read it to the audience <laughs> it's like if that's the case just let the thing run on auto slide uh, forward and you can just leave we'll just read it <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell us a story you know that's that's the whole thing right it's because that's right. that's how you engage people it's excellent uh, that's some, some great points i i'm happy that question was in there um so yeah th this is this is an interesting one so looking ahead as you approach you know your retirement uh what are your hopes for uh, uh ih and ihs okay so i'm gonna i'm gonna ask the question not reading it off a piece of paper so so, so as you're looking at, at yeah because i i hate yeah. host that like read a question it's, eh, it's, yeah. it's awful so so mike so you are looking ahead towards your retirement at some point here um what what are some of the things that you see in the future for uh ih and oehs and what are some of your hopes for you know where we'll be going you know in the future and in, in in this profession um at two levels uh on on the first level i've already addressed that which is was iron oxide. We've got something out there and, and um, it's not well appreciated and we need to get a better look at that and we need to come up for, we need to come up with an exposure limit for welding fumes. We need to come up with an exposure limit for iron oxide that recognizes carcinogenicity rather than shadows on the lung. Isiderosis is what we were taught. So from a technical point of view, I think that would be an area that I, I, I see a lot of need. 100, 
IARC identified 121 million exposed people. Bob, that's one and a half percent of the human population. Yeah, that's that's enormous. That's an enormous number. That's staggering. Yeah. I just did an Excel spreadsheet to make sure I have my decimal point in the right spot. <sighs> yeah. yeah. Okay, so then on the grand scale, on the grand scale, we need to address the fact that I was 42 with an earned research doctorate in a related field and had never heard of industrial hygiene until I talked to Steve. The most important thing I think we can do as a profession is make ourselves visible. Uh, Elizabeth Pullen had worked on that a great deal and a lot of other people had. I was, uh, I've worked with Elizabeth on a couple of projects with that. Uh, I linked up with uh, a friend of mine who teaches high school science, and I'm going out and talking about industrial hygiene uh, to his high school class, except he, be, he retired this year, so I lost my link. Mm. But as a profession, it's a fascinating profession, and we're interesting people. People think scientists are a bunch of, of, of dull people, and we're not. I mean, we've got yeah, people not at all. Who not at all. You know, I, I'm one of how many dozens of private pilots in industrial hygiene? people that make black powder weapons, you know, beer brewers, uh, people who are weavers. Uh, the, the number of different things that we do to keep our minds busy is, is, uh, is fascinating to me. And the number of different environments people work in is fascinating. I've always sure. been fascinated by, by industrial processes. There are so many stories that can be told about how we found out that makes you sick. How we figured out how to make that less of a health hazard. And, and stories about people, like the guys that came over and thanked me. Other industrial hygienists have stories like that. Sure. I'm, I'm just one out of what? There are 8,500 people in the EIHA, Masominos. There are about, maybe I think about 7,000 or so CIHs. That's a lot of life experience we've got, plus the people that are in the ACGIH, right? I mean, and of course, there's a lot of overlapping membership, sure, sure. but, you know, they have a different approach. So we have stories to tell, and people like stories. They, they, they're yeah. not nuts about science. Well, that's how you relate. You could relate to a story because the story brings, brings, it, you know, brings it home for you as, as the listener. You know, you get to, you, you get to relate to it. Yeah. Yeah, what was the woman who did the stuff on hexavalent chromium? Um, Julia Roberts played her in the movie. Oh wait! A, oh no no no! Um, uh, uh, Aaron Brockovich. That's right, Aaron Brockovich. Yeah. That wasn't about hexavalent chromium. That wasn't about science. That was about the story. Right. And look what it did for us. That's how we got things. That's what really helped get you know twenty nine CFR nineteen ten dot ten twenty six the hexavalent chromium standard. It was Aaron Brockovich that did that. It wasn't some, you know, industrial hygiene study. Right, she was a paralegal at yeah. that point, I think, yeah. Yeah, so those stories are out there, and if we can capture those stories and bring, bring it to people's attention that there's this whole population of folks out there that are interesting people that go out and do real-life stuff that aren't a bunch of egghead nerds that go out to have a real life, they have real stories, we run across real problems, and if we can find a way to make those make the stories of that problem identification and solution more engaging so that people will want to do that. Look, being a cop, you talk about a crummy job, what a horrible job being a cop. Yeah. And yet it gets glorified on TV and people want to sign up to be a cop. Right. 
There must be a way that we can do that. I'm, that's not my specialty. I'm a hard hat and steel toes IH. I'm a welder. Mm -hmm. Right. I'm not but, a I mean, but you, you, you are, I mean, I'm not going to say, well, I'm going to say classic. You are what people would classically identify as an industrial hygienist, you know, coming from the industrial workplace, you know, you're in petrochemical, you're in, you know, that industrial environment. Uh, but a lot of, a lot of industrial hygiene work now is not in the industrial setting, right? A lot of it's in, in office settings and schools. And, you know, so it's, it, it's, it, it's such like, it, there's a lot. I, I wouldn't even call them separate silos, but I guess they are to some extent. You know, there's just a lot of talk about diversity and, and, and you know, the different workplaces that industrial hygiene and, you know, environmental occupational health and safety. It's everywhere, really. Well, that's one reason I'm in favor of the name change to occupational hygienist. I mean, CIH is OK. I'm, I'm fond of it. Well, and yeah, because it's, it's it's embedded in all of our heads. It's embedded, but really, occupational hygiene is a much better name for it now. It's more descriptive. It is, it is, and you get involved in things that got nothing to do with occupation. Even when you're taking a look at things like mold, mm -hmm. which greatly overrated, but you know, uh, was yeah, there. I do a lot in that. So, I, so yeah, I can I I can concur. <laughs> 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 way 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 too much crazy stuff on that, on that specific. Yeah area and in, indoor environmental it's like talk about hype and uh you know misinformation plethora of it yeah there is yeah there is yeah. fascinating so, so i would I'm, say proselytize that's what my baptist friends call it proselytize okay go out there and knock on doors door to door with it yeah i mean honestly that the, the industry because it is it is interesting like we uh for the first year of the show we used to ask our guests at the end of the show this is off the regular interview just to, just to get sound bites on this uh tell me the most interesting thing that you heard back from a person when you told them you were an industrial hygienist you know what you know what with their description of what you did and a lot of times it was you clean teeth or uh, you're a janitor at a factory it's like it, right it's very yeah. yeah you're better off the general public yeah you're the general public obviously you've, you've had a storied career mike you've, you've been doing this for a while and i find it fascinating that you didn't even enter industrial hygiene until you were in your 40s so you're almost a late entry right in the career path. yeah you know? yeah uh but it's become a passion for you now that you're there oh yeah so, so name, I guess I'm going to ask you, you know, tell, tell me, is there a particular project? I know you, you started with one that was very interesting. Uh, is there an, another project that stands out as, you know, that, you, you know, was one of those things that in, in your career jumps out at you? That's tough when you probably had so many, right? <laughs> well, let me comment on, on the uh, effort response delay. When Richard Milhouse Nixon signed the Occupational Safety and Health Act into law in 1970, I was working on the shop floor as a welder. So in that 53-year period of time, I've had a chance to see enormous changes in, in the workplace. Things like respiratory protection are common, hearing protection is common, eye protection is common. HASCOM programs, substance-specific programs, are all, all these things are, are, are common. Now, they're not common. If you can go, on, you go online, you go to YouTube, and you can find all kinds of people in Southwest Asia out there working in foundries in pajamas and sandals. And so there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a real huge difference in the, in, the, in the two worlds here. 
But in the world that I've been working in, I've seen a big difference. And I think I think that that difference, it takes a long time. You're pushing the rock uphill. But what really makes the difference at the end of the day is the communication, the effective communication of the hazards to the people who are being exposed to the hazards so that they buy in on, on the engineering controls, work practices, and PPE when you're not there, when you're not watching. And seeing that cultural change is really what we want. Really, we are professionals in culture change that just use science as a tool for identifying what needs to be done. Because that's our real job, is culture change. And I've seen the beginnings of a culture change in our profession when it comes to addressing my favorite topic, which is welding. Um, I, think, I think the welding book that I put out makes a difference. But when I take a look at sales, I would have to say that the, uh, the distance learning project that started off, I think that's the, had the most impact because it's educated the most industrial hygienists. And we educate one another. Um, this happens to be like my little tiny narrow niche, but there's so much to industrial hygiene and so many industrial hygienists know so much that I don't know, and I'm dependent on them. We do a lot of calling back and forth. That's one good reason uh, to go to the conference. That's one good reason to get on a committee. It's one good reason to get involved in the AIHA rather than just sitting back, uh, is because you get a chance to establish relationships with your peers and, and find the things that interest them and increases the number of people that you can call up when you're faced with a situation you've never seen before and you really don't know what to do with it. There might be somebody that you met during the course of your work at the conference or your work on committees or work on projects that, that can help you out with that and can link it. Plus, we've got the bulletin board, our chat board that we post on for us to communicate there back and forth and what do you guys do about this problem? For me, I think the thing that I've done that has, has been most effective was I worked with James Walton. I met James Walton through Xandra Walton. Xandra and I met when we were on the Practice Standards and Guidelines Committee, which served this purpose and has sun, since been sunsetted. Uh, but that's how I met James, and uh, James is a videographer. So he videoed my PDC back in 2008. And then since that time, every time I've updated the PDC or made a platform presentation that would deal with things, for instance, like bowling fume as a carcinogen, that's been added into the distance learning course. And uh, I, I have to tell you that the AIHA staff has been absolutely terrific to work with when they've done that and have been through it and have reworked it. And I, I really have to thank Lauren for the work that she's done on that. And it's been just a terrific job. So I think I think that's what I did that makes a difference, is put that information out there for my fellow AIHs. Uh, I mean, and, and that's that, that's it, it, your passion for this topic shows through, Mike. It really does. Um, and you know, it's uh, it's a super important topic. And again, give me that number again of the people that have been in theory that have been exposed to uh, one hundred and twenty-one million. That's that's just like astronomical that that number is just it's staggering oh that's hard to believe right and that's and that's and all those people not necessarily are welders they're exposed to welding in the in the workplace right basically right that, that, that that's and that's a point worth making is that no that's not 121 million welders but what about the helpers 
Sure, there's people. There's there's people around the site when there's welding the all the time. Supervisors. Yeah. You walk into a welding shop and there's this haze. In Always. a welding shop, you go into a shipyard and the whole shipyard's got this haze, a welding fume, and that's a haze of a human carcinogen. Uh, and so yeah, it's it's a huge nearby. I had trouble at first accepting that, and still I started thinking that we might be including people who do just a little welding now and then. You know, because a lot of welding is just maintenance and repair work. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a lot of welding and heavy structural fabrication, building offshore equipment, fixing refineries, uh, building railroad cars, building airplanes, things like that. But uh, most welding, I think, is maintenance and repair work. And so there are a lot of people that are that are mechanics and repairmen and, and, and maintenance men uh, and women, because my mom was a welder, right, uh, that are exposed, but aren't classified as a welder. So I, I'm assuming they're including including that group. So in your mom being a welder, I, I'm I'm going to go out on a limb and assume it was during World War II, during uh, in that era, or no? Am yeah, I, or in the I... shipyards in Long Beach, yeah. California. Okay. She's one of the first 10 women to be a Navy certified stainless steel welder. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You see, you come from a long line of welders. Yeah. That's, that's great. Well, Mike, I, I, we've, we've taken up a lot of your time so far, but I, I really, honestly, I, I could go an hour on this, even though we're only a 30 minute show. Um, I, I, I do find you to be totally engaging and, uh, uh, passionate about, you know, especially about workplace, uh, health issues with welding, which I think that, that number I'm still, I'm still having a hard time, like wrapping my head around over a hundred million people exposed to this carcinogen that we really haven't been aware of, which is, quite scary to be honest. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the implications of that are pretty severe. So, um, so anyway, thanks for joining us on, on this episode of healthier workplaces. Um, I, I appreciate what you're doing and, and keep, keep, keep pushing your passion forward to the industry, because I think we really, people like you were just, you know, one of the driving factors that, that really, uh, give, give all of us motivation to try to strive to do better and, what we do. Thank you, Bob. So that's our show for this week. We'll be back again with another episode of Healthier Workplaces. Until next time, I'm Bob Krell. Stay healthy. Mm -hmm.